Come on, let's go. By shortwave broadcast, direct from important overseas capitals, we are about to broadcast this moment in our history. Hello and welcome to the History Workshop Podcast. I'm Mary Beth Hamilton. Today, our topic is nature, the natural world and the ways we know it, and how that process of knowing has been political today and in the past. Our guests are two distinguished historians, Professor Vinita Damodaran and Professor Harriet Ritvo. Together, they discuss the rise of scientific expertise, its entanglement in projects of empire, and how it has interacted with indigenous and local knowledge. We also hear about whether solutions to climate change today can be left to scientists alone, what is meant by the Anthropocene, and about the politics of conservation. This podcast forms part of History Workshop Online's new series on the political environment. In the wake of COP26, the series explores how environmental change has been made, understood, and contested in the past, and asks how this history might widen the scope of our political imagination in response to global ecological crisis today. And now to introduce and head up this conversation, I'll hand over to the series editor, History Workshop's Ellie Robson. So today we're going to be talking about knowing nature, the history of knowledge about the natural world and the politics that shape the production and use of natural knowledge. We're very fortunate to be joined today by two leading environmental historians, Vinita Damodaran and Harriet Ritvo, to think about some of these questions. Vinita Damodaran is a professor of South Asian history and the director of the Center for World Environmental History at Sussex. She's a historian of modern India and sustainable development dialogues in the global south. Her work ranges from the social and political history of Bihar to the environmental history of South Asia, including using historical records to understand climate change in the Indian Ocean world. And she's particularly interested in questions of environmental change, identity and resistance in Eastern India. Uh, most recently in 2020, Benita published an edited collection on empire, forests, and colonial environments in Africa, the Caribbean, South Asia, and New Zealand. So that gives a sense of kind of how broad some of these questions are. We're also joined by Harriet Ritvo, an emeritus professor at MIT. She works on environmental history, British imperial history, and the history of natural history. Harriet is a leading scholar in animal studies contributing to the establishment of this field as a crucial part of environmental and social history. She is currently writing a book titled The Edges of Wild, which examines the interface between wildness and domestication. Harriet's most recent monograph, Dawn of the Green, looked at environmental struggles at the heart of the Lake District in the 19th century, as nature conservationists and urban developers battled over the water resources of Thelmere. So thank you both for joining us. I'm really, really pleased to have you both here on the History Workshop podcast. And I just wanted to kick off by asking you both to tell us a little bit about your research into the history of natural knowledge and particularly why this is an important question for you. Benita, would you like to begin? Yes. So I'm a environmental historian of South Asia, as you beautifully introduced me. 
Uh, and I've been interested in uh, issues relating to the forest and plantation histories of Eastern India in particular. But my work was also linked to the history of indigenous communities in the region. So my interest in indigenous histories dovetailed very interestingly with environmental history. So I was able to understand that environmental history was in many ways an interdisciplinary study of the relationship between culture, technology, science, and nature through time. And that's the way it has been sort of defined as by people like Donald Worcester, by Mark Elwin, by Richard Grove, uh, as the historically documented part of the story of the life and death, not only of human individuals, but of societies and species in terms of their relationship with the world around them. And that definition has been very important to my scholarship. And in, in many ways, environmental history is about people and nature. And uh, as I said, the, the work that I did enabled me to see these, uh, the, the interdisciplinary nature of environmental history, which draws both on geography and on history, and of course, also ecological anthropology in the context of my current work. Thank you, Harriet, how about you? So I also am an environmental historian, along with several other things, historian of science, most prominently, I guess. So most of my work has been about the history of human relations with members of other species, especially those of our own order, that is to say mammalia, which is on the one hand about the different ways that people have understood those creatures, but also the way that the interactions have mutually shaped our relationship. I've also written about environmental conflict in 19th century Britain in particular. The book that you referred to in the introduction is about a conflict about the first lake of the Lake District to be dammed that really set the pattern for the kind of arguments that we have still about every, every single environmental intrusion like that, where depressingly enough, the positions taken and the range of stakeholders are exactly, sadly, the same. Thank you so much. So I think with this huge range of expertise in the room, we're set to have a really interesting discussion. And I suppose I just wanted to probe a little bit further about science, really, and how you use or look at scientific knowledge within your work. Particularly, I'm interested in whether you find or have found in your work a tension between looking at science as a kind of actor in the creation of environments and looking at using scientific methodologies or collaborating with scientists um, to think about uncovering real environments in the past. Um, is there a tension there or can they be kind of fruitfully um, brought into dialogue? A great question, if I may go first. As a historian of science who, uh, and an environmental historian who's looking at modern South Asian history from about um, 1800, science plays a very, very important role in the way in which colonialism uh, reordered environments. And looking at what happens to India in the context of the British Empire, we can see an ordering and management of the landscape and the domestication of the landscape on an unparalleled scale, right? So science is as an actor, very much uh, part of the process of the way in which Indian environments were managed. And that for someone like Carolyn Merchant would go back to the 16th century, the rise of a Baconian understanding of science, uh, where nature becomes a slave to mankind 
he talks about the masculine birth of time. And uh, Carolyn Merchant has very persuasively argued that this results in the death of nature. And this, her work has, of course, inspired a lot of ecofeminism and the way in which nature in the pre-modern period, looking at the philosophies of Gaia, I think also draw on that, pre-modern period were about different and multiple ways of uh, being in the world. And that is what I seek also to understand in terms of the way in which indigenous communities in India still relate to the environment. So science as an actor, I think, is a very important part of our current way in which they shape the environment, manage the environment and domesticate the environment. So the second tension that you talk about is how scientific epistemologies or scientific understandings relate to the environment. And that, of course, is true. You mentioned ice cores, I can add paleo ecologies, I can, uh, we can talk about soil science. All these have been extremely interesting in understanding our past environments and to understand the ways in which we have lived with nature. You can use science to understand past environments and past ways of living and knowing in the world. And so in some senses, when I work with scientists, and I'm currently co-writing a paper on millennial droughts in India with some speleothem specialists about what were the, long, what were the longest El Ninos in Indian history, which, which sort of coincided with very historic periods of drought in South Asia, for example, in the 14th century or in the Mughal period in the 16th century, the biggest droughts sort of coincided with El Nino periods, which Richard Grove's work has uh, so historically pointed out. So I think that sort of knowledge, I think, is linking up the natural archives with the manuscript archives is proving very productive. But this is not the same thing as talking about the way in which science has dominated nature in the Baconian sense. I think that the, the dichotomy that arises from, on the one hand, the understanding of science as the search for absolute truth. And on the other hand, the interpretation of science as a cultural construct or as culturally inflected can be overstated. That is to say, it's possible to respect the information that science produces while also recognizing that the way that questions are framed and in some cases, the way that results are interpreted are strongly conditioned by you know, the social demographic, et cetera, et cetera, background of the scientists. It's unfortunate that at the moment, with regard to climate issues and also to regard, with regard to pandemic issues, there are some people who say that because scientists sometimes are biased or wrong, you don't have to pay attention to anything that they said, but I would say that is a misunderstanding of the situation. Looking backwards, of course, the term scientist is a 19th century neologism. And before that, with regard to certainly the organic world, the people who were their predecessors are something more like naturalists. And it's also, true that with regard to empire, which opened up large areas of the world for examination, interpretation, et cetera, by, by scientists, they sometimes had a hard time figuring out that there were people with important information that they should pay attention to if those people were not certified in a way that they recognize. I mean, an example that I've talked about 
is to do with whether the platypus laid eggs. And this was a hot topic for decades after people had collected testimony, not only from indigenous Australians, but also from European Anglo settlers who said, yes, it did, but it wasn't official scientific information until an actual scientist uh, saw a platypus laying eggs. And I believe he shot her, unfortunately. So some of the conventions of science can actually blind scientists to available expertise if it's not in the form that they normally acknowledge. That's really interesting. And yeah, maybe we can return towards the end of the conversation to some of those questions about the role of extra scientific knowledge in, in how we might tackle um, some of the environmental and ecological problems that we, we face today. I mean, in your research, um, and you've both touched on this, what other ways of knowing nature have you come across that have been significant historically? And what might we learn from those ways of knowing nature as, as historians? Yeah, so uh, as again, as a historian of India's indigenous communities, different ways of living and being on the planet is what I'm sort of seeking to document and seeking to uncover. More recently, I'm just writing an article for The Lancet on what the, the history of Adivasis in Eastern India can tell us about global planetary health. So these are communities which are currently facing terrible inequities in the context of mining companies, which are engaged in a terrible land grab and plundering the resources in these regions. What we are encountering today is a Klondike mining rush. So th this is happening right now, it's contemporary. And we are sort of working with activists at the Center for World Environmental History in Sussex to understand what exactly is going on in Eastern India and to understand how a particularly myopic lens uh, of the state, which is interested in development at all costs, is being resisted in this Eastern India's frontier by women, by children, uh, by men who have very different ways of understanding nature. Uh, and very often they use the language of these mountains which are being mined for bauxite. Every single flat top mountain in Orissa is being mined for bauxite to feed the military industrial complex uh, of the West, as well as of course now India's huge surge in demand. And they say these mountains are repositories of our spirits, of our gods. We do not want these mountains to disappear. At the same time, as uh, these mining companies do uh, completely destroy these landscapes, what it brings in their wake is rather like what happened in the, the 16th century in um, indigenous America. It brings disease, it brings TB, it bring, and now more recently COVID. So I think drawing on these past traditions and philosophies to understand how we live with nature, and, and this is not something which was in the hoary past, this is happening now, where communities are, which we, we call them environmental defenders, are fighting to preserve lifestyles which are different from the consumerist lifestyles that a majority of Indians now have sort of linked up to and, and what has been the norm in the West for a very long time. So I think the work that I do is, is, about, is about rescuing these narratives, uh, which I, I don't know whether that answers your question. Absolutely. I mean, as far as, as I've tended to encounter, as I said, information about the environment, the natural world comes in many different forms of expertise and the kind of formal expertise that's recognized by science or 
before that by naturalists or physicians or Western physicians or so forth, is one kind. But even within those societies, there are alternative sources of expertise. Hunters, for example, farmers, certainly, as well as when Europeans went to other places around the world, the people who lived there and observed and interacted with the environment there and you know and resistance to the imposition of formal expertise again is not limited to people out, outside the society that the experts come from i mean even within 19th century agriculture where you would think that people like stock breeders would have rushed to embrace new information about the way mammalian reproduction worked. But in fact, they resisted it for a very long time, even though if you're a breeder, your main business is animal sex. But the benefit that would have come from an improved understanding of what was going on apparently didn't trump the irritation that you were being told what to do by people you didn't want to listen to. Could I just add to what Harriet was saying? Harriet made some very important points here about indigenous knowledge. And I think it's quite interesting that it works both ways. Here she's talked about the way in which people resist being foisted ideas on them. But at the same time, if you go back, if you look at Linnaeus and um, the Hottus, Hottus Malabaricus, Linnaeus drew on the systems of classification of the Hottus Malabaricus, which was this treatise that was composed by Ayurvedic Indian physicians, lower caste Indian physicians, uh, under the direction of uh, Van Rida, the, the famous Dutch explorer. So they drew on classical, uh, on traditional Indian uh, indigenous herbal knowledge, and it fed into linear systems of classification. So here was respect for indigenous knowledge. And if you, you know, fast forward to the 19th century, then you get a rejection under someone like Joseph Hooker, who worked in Kew of indigenous knowledge. He says, my lectures, he talks about these tribals from Sikkim. He patronizes them. He doesn't use their terminology for his botanical place naming, right? So he, there is a complete rejection there in the 19th century, a hubris of empire. So yeah, there's lots of threads that I'd like to pick up on there. And I think what we've been talking about here about kind of relationships of knowledge or relationships between different practitioners of knowledge raises this wider question about what we mean when we when we define knowledge as political or knowledge of nature and the environment as political in the past. How would you kind of explain that concept of, of how knowledge itself is, is a subject of politics through your research? Well, I mean... I mean, that's a giant, a giant question. I'm only asking I'm not, a big questions today. I, I'm not a philosopher. <laughs> so I suppose I would bring it down to what we were saying before about scientists or other acknowledged experts being products of their social, cultural context, just like anybody else. And so in that sense, the perspectives that come from that tend to be integrated into the way they frame their questions and the way they interpret the answers. I mean, uh, it's not quite part of what you're, you're asking about, but a very good example of that is uh, something that Stephen Jay Gould discussed in his book, The Mismeasure of Man, where at the beginning of the 
20th century when the United States was coping with a flood of immigrants from Southern and Eastern Europe, questions were formulated, are Italians, Jews, Poles, whatnot, less intelligent than people from Northwestern Europe? Or the other way that it persisted in being asked later even is to do with race or to do with sex, gender. And you're thinking, well, it, it seems clear why you would ask, are humans more intelligent than cats? But why would you ask whether some kinds of people are more intelligent than others? Well, you, you know where it comes from. So in that way, knowledge is bound to be somewhat political. But as I said before, I don't think that's a reason for dismissing everything that scientists say. So here, um, it's very interesting. Again, I, I, I um, look back at the context of empire where there was this phenomenal knowledge exercise that you get from the 17th century or from the 16th century. They are just, you know, all these Asiatic society of Bengal set up, the Royal Society set up, this ph phenomenal knowledge gathering to understand the flora and fauna of empire, right? And this was part of the East India Company uh, ships, it's part of exploration. And you, you would say, is it political? Of course it's political. Because the knowledge gathering, knowledge is power. And as, as uh, Warren Hastings said, when he sort of uh, took over Bengal, he said uh, every bit of acquisition of knowledge uh, for the company is about power for the company, right? Uh, and now the question is, and someone like Richard Grove would argue that how is this knowledge put to use? Do they then proceed just to hoover up the resources of empire and leave India completely benighted, the landscape denuded? It's people poor. Part of that is true. But the scientific knowledge, according to Richard, also is very important for the language of conservation, green imperialism. So the knowledge that, I mean, the idea of desiccation, for example, that you could kill the golden goose that laid the egg, yeah? Or the goose that laid the golden egg. Uh, is what, what was what fueled these scientists that uh, Harriet is talking about to say, hey, hang in there, let's 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 preserve uh, one sixth of India, sterilize it in terms of forest landscapes. So while the exercise may have been political and science is related here to knowledge gathering and to politics, there is also, according to Richard, an aesthetic valuing of the environment. There is a scientific valuing in terms of understanding. Uh, the risk of uh, endemism or uh, understanding extinction or the, uh, and about what happens to endemic species. And that, he argues, emerges in the context of very fragile ecosystems like islands, oceanic islands. Uh, and he's identified these as Mauritius, St. Helena, and uh, of course, uh, on a subcontinental scale in India and South Africa. And also there's a, there's a kind of sense that possession of information about the environment goes along with political possession. You can see this in, in a kind of funny example, which is that the 18th century naturalist Thomas Pennant yeah. was going to wrote a book which he was going to call American Zoology, but that then the American Revolution happened. And so he said in his preface, he said, I can't call it American Zoology anymore because we don't own it. But it didn't stop him from publishing the book. He just retitled it as Arctic zoology, because most of the things he talked about lived in Canada, too. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So we've got a kind of 
there's a politics of knowledge that can operate at various scales. It could be a hyper-local politics, a geopolitics, very much imbricated in projects of national power or identity, as well as in empire, most prominently, perhaps. How does this underpinning of the project of empire with natural knowledge change the way that we might think about global responses to climate change or projects of conservation and sustainability today? Is there a kind of imperial politics still at work in the way that we think about conservation? So, Gary, could I just um, say this? Yeah, you know, as again, as a historian of empire, as I said, they're both salutary lessons to take away from the way in which green imperialism operated in the context of empire. Very much top-down conservation, top-down fixes, sterilizing, as I said, one-sixth of the landscape under the most draconian forest legislation which throughout people, communities, disregarded uh, local knowledge in favor of expert knowledge. And it seems to me that our current climate crisis is privileging scientists as the historians of the future. And in many ways, the turf is being pulled away from humanities, from philosophy, from historians. And we need to claim, reclaim our turf, you know. Issues of climate change cannot just be addressed by science, scientists or experts alone. You have to have a very different way of, as I said, living and being on this planet, rethinking our engagement uh, with, with the planet. And I think our imperial sort of history is not the way in which you need to engage with conservation today. You need bottom-up solutions, solutions. And I think this is now being understood by WHO, by the UN organizations, the solutions need to come from communities who have a very, very careful understanding and a clear understanding of what their local problems are, right? And while technical fixes might work and you can do all the sort of carbon fixing and, the, and you know, with, under, with COP26, you know, the television is full and the news is full of just all these technological solutions to address climate change. I want to know what the bottom-up solutions are. I would like to see how communities are addressing this, how they're cleaning up their own backyard, which is being polluted by multinational mining companies? How, how are they being supported to reject coal mining, for example, in India, in Eastern India? You know, to go where the fight is and to stand by those who are fighting against what is wrong, not, not fixing it from the top with some sort of technological fix. Harriet, I'd be really interested to hear about how your research into the Lake District and conservation there kind of interrelates with that as well. That episode was, of course, it was very local, but it attracted both national and international attention because of the iconic value of the Lake District and because it had meaning that transcended practicality. It was a kind of icon of romantic uh, literary ideology, et cetera, or it was associated with that. But it ended up the way most such struggles ended up, which is that the people who wanted to exploit it and whose arguments were essentially economic and technological were the ones who won. I think that Vanita is right to say that for many of the current issues, the way to address them needs to take account of the people on the spot, but also give them access to the developments that science and technology can offer. I mean, I have recently been on a committee at MIT where a complicated program, but basically to encourage MIT faculty members to devise solutions or partial solutions 
to the climate crisis at the moment. And one of the things that is, as Vanita says, a constant issue is say you make, let's say, a better battery or some such thing, but then you have to make sure that the people who need to use it, deploy it, actually can and will do it. Otherwise, it's not useful. Now, some of the big issues, the big things that are at issue in the current climate crisis do have to be addressed on a much a larger scale, things to do with the oceans and, 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 and the, the atmosphere in general, the, um, the weather system. But it's been completely obvious that, as they say, fine, fine words, butter, no parsnips, or as Greta Thunberg says, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, could I just add one thing here? You know, it reminds me of my research in the in Eastern India. I'm, I'm talking about 10 years ago, where these local communities are quite dependent on the monsoon. And you can see that they are struggling to cultivate, right? And they told me that what they needed in their village was a small check dam, which at that time cost about 5,000 pounds. And um, the local development officer who was curious at our visit turned up in his Jeep. So I said this to him. I said, all they need is a small check term. And of course, he, it was very clear that that would never be followed up, that these people would be left. Meanwhile, they would say that their lands were not really productive and they should be moved out. So it's those sort of local solutions that, you know, Gandhi, of course, talked about small is beautiful. But it is at that level that we are talking about. Yeah. I mean, and one, one thing that might be a kind of set of examples of both what what is possible and what is difficult is the way that wildlife conservation has changed over the last, what, 30 years or so to regard the people who live in those areas as partners in preservation rather than antagonists. Yeah. And that has worked much more in, yeah, yeah in the context of um, Zimbabwe, for example, the campfire conservation movement. Could you say a little bit more about that for our listeners? Because I think people will be really interested to hear about how conservationist practices have changed over time and, and what models that include local practitioners might look like or local inhabitants. Well, if you if you look at the beginning of modern wildlife conservation, which is in the late 19th century, I mean, one thing you see, well, in the in in North America, of course, the the, the first national parks cleared out all the indigenous inhabitants. They made large, enormous spaces that were supposed to be uninhabited by people except for the US Army or whoever was in charge of guarding and ma maintaining them. Although in North America, as in other places, uh, defending those borders is basically impossible. And in Africa and also in South Asia, the understanding of preservation of wildlife which was to be preserved, not for its own sake, but so there'd be enough to be shot by you know, sport hunters. It was understood that the wildlife needed to be defended against indigenous predators, I mean, indigenous human predators. And you can even see in some of the early regulations about it, which are fairly similar across the British Empire, that in some places, in fact, you, there were in a way, three interested human parties. One is the indigenous people. One is non-elite European 
settlers and the other is sport hunters and those kind of people. And the way the access was divided up was heavily in favor of the, the recreational hunters. And often the others were characterized as butchers or profligate and inappropriate in, in various ways. Over time, I mean, with um, partly to do with changing politics, partly to do with the emergence of ecological understandings that is seeing the biota of, of an area as all connected instead of kind of separate species. Understandings have, have changed and respect for the rights of the people who actually live there ha has increased. And so now in many, many places, local people have been included and given a stake one way or another in the in the preservation of wildlife populations and also in the defense of their other interests like agriculture from the interventions of, of wildlife or I suppose in, in the UK from the interventions of fox hunters. So. Yeah, it's interesting, Harriet. And in, can I just add, in India, it's very much been top-down conservation, right? So I said one-sixth of the Indian landscape sterilized under forest reserves and, and, and Project Tiger in the 70s under Indira Gandhi also, you know, it's about big cats but the the issue with that is that local people were thrown out right local people were thrown out and these are pastoralists uh, these are small subsistence agriculturalists and this sort of followed the pattern colonial pattern in post-colonial India but more recently there's there was a there's been a huge controversy about letting local communities the forest rights act indigenous communities in particular have their rights and there's a debate between the conservationists and local communities and this is still an ongoing sort of a debate and battle. Because what you get, for example, in terms of elephant conservation, and these are communities who've lived with elephants in Eastern India, where you're getting elephants ravaging villagers' fields, right? Precisely because the elephants have nowhere to go, right? Yeah. They have nowhere to go because these elephant corridors or forest uh, corridors have been destroyed by mining companies, right? So it has to be a sort of joint up thinking if you're going to allow this sort of uh, cohabitation to exist. You can't expect people to live with wild animals if these wild animals don't, do not have uh, accessible sort of corridors to move between uh, pockets. So the problem is that the state, mining companies, and local communities are all battling with big animals for uh, the same space. And only there's only going to be one likely winner in this, and that's going to be uh, the corporate mining companies or corporate companies, sadly. I mean, it's interesting to compare the way national parks and preserves have been organized in, well, in, in most of the world, the colonized world, including North America, and the way they're organized in Britain, since nobody has thrown out the inhabitants of Domesday villages in the Lake District or, or the Dales or any place when they establish national parks in Europe. And the, the parks, I mean, the parks are different. I mean, there aren't any any really large upsetting animals in them. Although again, the, the current discussions about reintroducing some of the now extinct animals are, ex are extremely interesting. Um, and when you see how upset people are even about pretty mild mannered things like beavers, you know, it will be interesting what happens when somebody introduces a few wolves or bears. Thanks, 
both of you for those really interesting examples. And I think there's so much to be unpacked there around the politics of conservation. I was also wondering some of the current buzz terms that are being used today, like extinction, which has become the kind of clarion call of extinction rebellion, things like this. How, how are these terms kind of constructed and how have their meanings changed over over time. And, and particularly, I'm interested, Harriet, you were speaking um, a bit earlier about the emotional resonances of the Lake District as a landscape. And I think a lot of emotional land, uh, language kind of attaches itself to particular species or particular landscapes. And, and what impact does that have on the kind of problems and solutions that we identify? Well, uh, another big question. Language, of course, is, is key in, well, triggering people's emotions and also expressing expressing them, I mean, words like wild and wilderness are deployed and were deployed with regard to the Lake District in extremely surprising ways. That is, it's clear if you look at the Lake District landscape that it's not a wilderness. It's full of sheep for one thing, but it's described in the 19th century, it was described with exactly the same language that was applied to Yellowstone in the middle of North America. But people, you know, when I taught environmental history at MIT, sometimes I would ask my students to look out the window at the beginning of the class and say, what is natural? What is wild? And it turned out most of them thought that in a way, anything green, so, you know, a median strip on a highway or a cornfield. So those, those words are very, very powerful but uh, not necessarily very precise. A word like extinction was, well, it's a controversial word. It, it took a long time for there to be a general acknowledgement among, among say, well, naturalists that it even happened. I mean, people knew that in the 17th century, the dodo had become extinct, but there were only a few dodos and they were only on one little, little place. It really took into the 19th century for people to understand that large populations of animals, like the quaggas in South Africa, or later like the, the bisons in North America, or the passenger pigeon, could suddenly have these catastrophic population declines and either almost disappear as the bison or actually disappear as the other two. And, you know, originally the resistance to the idea of extinction was related to current resistance to evolution on creationist grounds. That is, as people now think that God made the world and that's how it is, but there was a, a kind of analogous conviction that if God made a species, it wouldn't go away. But also there was some resistance to understanding that in large territories that were under the control of Western governments, that this kind of catastrophic decline could happen. You know, you see up to a point in natural history books or travelers accounts, people talking about the animals retreating to the interior until finally people recognize that there was no, no more interior. And so that's why you have situations like for a species like the quagga, which is 
a kind a kind of zebra. There were thousands and thousands of them, and then there were none. There were a few in West in European zoos, but the remains of quokkas that exist, they less than ten, you know, in in zoos, as opposed to say the thylacine in Australia, where people recognized because that happened a bit later. People recognized that it was disappearing, and so the I mean, I've been in a museum room full of skeletons of of, of thylacines, uh, but. Quarkus, hardly any, although the species has recently been redefined so that what used to be called virtual zebras are now defined as, or quaggas and them are the same species. And so now all the virtual zebras stuffed in museums are called quaggas. And so it's not clear whether that means that they are actually extinct or not. Yeah, it's just interesting that historically, you've had uh, extinctions. For example, it's dangerous to romanticize indigenous communities as well. The megafauna in Australia disappeared as a result of the fire landscapes of indigenous communities, right, there. So people have had extinctions in the past, you know? but the, 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 the scale of the extinctions now is what is worrying. And so the scientists and the documentation now is so much more. Again, the documentation very much, or the knowledge of that documentation very much still in in hands of uh, particular groups of scientists. I'm sort of involved in a repatriation project of India's botanical collections, which are held in Western herbariums like Kew. Just to, to understand, um, because India's botanical survey post-independence has not happened. The last botanical survey was by Hooker in 1871. Wow. So uh, most of the herbarium specimens are held in Western herbariums. So they would like just to be able to rewrite their botanical survey uh, or to, to write their flora of India, they need uh, those specimens. So, uh, and, and to think that these are what is handicapping countries uh, in the global South is quite shocking, even for a rich country like India. So I think, I mean, we, there are several levels in which we can map extinction or the language of extinction and who has that language and, and who is talking to whom in a top-down situation. But also there's a language of ecological grief that you know, our young people are now suffering from. Every time my son opens a newspaper, he's just listening to or, or reading about uh, disappearing species, disappearing landscapes. And that language, I think, is it's causing uh, depression among young people. Uh, and you quoted Greta Thunberg. I don't know what the answer to that solution is, but we need to explore it, I think, through philosophy, through psychology, through workshops to reconnect with the landscape in different ways. And I, I don't see that happening fast enough. Yeah. I'm sorry. And I, I would just say that, of course, as Vanita says, extinctions have happened before people have done them, before the causes of the end of the Pleistocene extinctions in North America is debatable, but probably the advent of the ancestors of Native Americans from Northeast Asia has had at least something to do with it, along with changing climate. But it's the same as people saying, well, the climate has changed in the past, which of course it has, um, and catastrophically, but it hasn't changed as fast. And it hasn't been caused, I mean, species have probably caused each other's extinctions before, non-human species, but they probably haven't changed the climate before, except maybe the blue-green algae that put the oxygen into our atmosphere. 
But saying something like that is kind of beside the point because we're, you know, humans live on a certain time scale. And if everything is going to be a lot different in a million years, it doesn't matter so much to us. That leads me on to one of the final questions that I had for you both about the idea of the Anthropocene, which is defined as the kind of epoch today where humans exert a kind of decisive influence on global ecology. And I think that gestures to uh, something you just mentioned, Harriet, about the pace of change, the, the, the speed of change that's happening, and also the the global scale at the moment. I was wondering if you find this concept useful in your work and what kind of knowledge of nature you think is kind of implied in this term and and whether that allows us to use it as historians or whether it's kind of foundations in geological deep time pose some problems or if that's an interesting concept to work with. I mean, in a way, since, since my work focuses mostly on the 19th and 18th centuries, Anthropocene isn't really an issue for that. I have to say, I find it a persuasive concept, but actually the the scene that I have a problem with is the Holocene, which is the imposition of a human historical scale on a set of categories that is, as you say, geological and mostly in terms of millions of years. And the Holocene is just the beginning basically of agriculture which was not geological in its consequences for a long time. So Anthropocene, I fear, is justified. That is, it will be readable in the rocks, however long in the future. But I'm sure it's more relevant to Benita's work than to mine. No, I'm also a modern historian, but it's uh, very interesting just to understand the way in which human beings, I mean, as an environmental historian who, who has a sort of a long-term perspective, but not not uh, in a. Um, I don't go back to the Holocene in, in, any, in any case. Probably the early medieval period uh, with my current research, but it ju- just to say that you know you can talk about turning points in history. So you mentioned agriculture. You can talk about rise of urbanism, but there's a difference between turning points in environmental history and tipping points, which we are with the scientists are talking about now, where you got getting positive feedback loops where the ecosystem is not able to recover. So as an environmental historian, I find the term very persuasive, precisely because we are looking at the impact of humans on a geological sort of timescale, but uh, the the influence on, as you said, on rocks and uh, the influence on climate, atmosphere and the environment. And I think that is, you know, if the Anthropocene is sort of DVD and people are, the dating of the Anthropocene now is very, very interesting. People dated back to even as late as 1610, where changes in the atmosphere uh, occurred and global cooling seems to have occurred and some of it is traced back to the way in which the americas was you know reforested after indigenous uh, aborigines were sort of cleared out or native americans were the population collapsed from 60 million to 6 million but all those are controversial the more interesting point for me is um, the rise of fossil fuel use as a sort of uh, turning point stroke tipping point, which is 1945, what is known in the Anthropocene sort of literature as great, the great acceleration, right? So that, that is where we can really understand what human beings are doing to the planet in terms of climate and the environment. I think that therefore it's quite a persuasive term. But what I find problematic with the term is it's talking about all of us in it together, right? That, uh, you know, human beings have done this to the planet as a, you know, as a species. But it's not, I mean, this is where, as I said, we need it to be sort of understood through the lens of gender, through the lens of race, 
through the lens of class, right? And we know this just precisely because the average poor Indian hardly uses any coal, say, compared to uh, our average household or energy consumption in the U.S. So when we go back to the locality and when we sort of uh, refract uh, the idea of the Anthropocene or the concept of the Anthropocene and its impact through the lens of gender, race and class, we can see that the locality is very, very important. And what, what is happening in the locality? What are the global forces in the locality, which is why I go back to my original point about scientists shouldn't be allowed to sort of take the turf away from historians or from social scientists. We need to sort of reclaim it and understand the multifaceted impact of, of these debates and to reclaim these debates for ourselves. Yes. Many thanks to Vinita Danadaran and Harriet Ritvo for taking part in this conversation. You can learn more about them and their work on the episode page for this podcast please visit our website, historyworkshop.org.uk. You can find us on Twitter at HistoryWO and on Facebook and Instagram as History Workshop. This is the History Workshop podcast. I'm Mary Beth Hamilton. Thanks for listening.